Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. Um, A lot of powerful truth in the Minor Prophets, though, and maybe we ought to spend more time there. I was there early Sunday morning, and I mean early Sunday morning, and um, God really laid it on my heart to um, share what I read there with you, and the whole message really developed or sprung out of this one verse in Hosea 4, 17. I'm going to take a break this week from our study in the Psalms. Last week, we studied together, possibly the greatest, most beautiful, it's definitely one of the favorite chapters in God's inspired hymnal, Psalm 51. It's a chapter, a song that loudly declares God's amazing grace to us that when you and I sin, we can confess that sin and we can repent of that sin and we can be restored to relationship with God all because of God's amazing grace to us in Jesus Christ. But we find in the New Testament church, if we read the many letters written to them, and we find in our churches today, and that is part of the reason I felt a strong hand of the Lord on me to deviate one night from our study in the Psalms together, we find that Satan can, and he frequently does, take the amazing grace of God and twist it. He manipulates it misrepresents it. He can't destroy it. He can't. Um, So what he attempts to do is to negate or stifle its powerful effect by communicating a misunderstanding of what God's grace is. It's more than a misunderstanding, honestly. It's it's false doctrine. It's a heresy that Satan presents. Um, Instead of the amazing grace that God offers and that we receive by confession of sin and repentance of sin and turning from sin to Christ by faith, instead of the amazing grace that God has designed to set us free, to give us liberty, freedom from the bondage of sin, to free us to obey God's word and his will for our lives, instead of that, Satan twists God's design of grace, even the very definition of grace, to be no longer freedom not to sin, but freedom to continue in sin. And um, I've known, I've experienced it from Satan before where he gets me to question, well, isn't God gracious? And, you know, um, in this temptation, you can just ask for forgiveness (laughs) the moment you commit it, that type of thinking. In this wrong understanding of grace, God's design in grace is presented by Satan again as no longer a freedom from sin, a liberty to not sin, but instead a freedom to sin or a license to do it. And God's precious and costly, amazing grace is then taken for granted. And this is a history of not just churches today in America and not just New Testament churches. Paul fought it often. It's even the history of God's people in the Old Testament. Over and over, our gracious God extended grace to his people Israel. And uh, he called out them, called, called out to them to confess their sin and to repent of it. No longer live in it. And we've got the inspiring record of Israel doing that often. 
Um, but we also have from Genesis to, Genesis to Malachi the record of what we've just described, God's grace being abused, not taken seriously, taken for granted, incorrectly viewed as an enablement to continue in sin. And it's not. But some of the audience to whom God sent the prophet Hosea did have that misunderstanding. And it says here in Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. We find one of the saddest, most scary verses, I think, in all of the Old Testament at least, a message from God to the prophet and preacher Hosea that he was to communicate to Israel, the ten northern tribes, was during the time of the divided kingdom, and specifically to Ephraim, but they represented all of Israel to a group of people who had taken God's grace for granted. And he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. It's not Ephraim, Joseph's son. Uh, it's the entire tribe of Ephraim. And if we think God too harsh for what at first, anyway, appears to be an abandonment. I want you to read it carefully, what it said there. It's not that Ephraim struggled with idolatry. It's not even that Ephraim was fighting sin, sometimes winning, sometimes yielding to sin, which is what we experience so often in life. No, God clearly says here that Ephraim is joined, joined to idolatry, that there's a habitual relationship there a marriage to sin. That's really what's implied in the Hebrew word that's translated joined. It's an abuse of God's previously given. And currently, even now in, in this prophetic message he's given, an abuse of God's grace, a denial of God's grace. And when we take God's grace for granted, when we incorrectly view it as a license to continue in sin, unabated, instead of a reason to be free of sin, liberty from sin, to turn in repentance back to God. When we would rather join or, or marry ourselves to sin than join ourselves in faithfulness and in fidelity to our amazingly gracious God, he can, and he sometimes does, let us alone. And Puritan pastor and theologian Thomas Brooks, in his commentary on this verse, he describes God, uh, us taking God's grace for granted this way. That God is presented to the soul as one that is made up all of mercy or all of grace. Is our God merciful? Without a doubt. Is God gracious? <laughs> Without a doubt. It's amazing grace. But what else is he? He's holy and he's just and he's glorious. And so God's amazing grace doesn't give us the liberty to accentuate or embrace only certain aspects of who he is and what he does. No, faith in Christ, a correct understanding of and correct response to his amazing grace to us in Jesus Christ, it accentuates and embraces all of God, all that he's revealed himself to be, all of his glorious character, all that he is and all that he does. And when we do this by misunderstanding his grace to us, when we ignore other aspects of his character, like his holiness and his justice, well, we end up not coming to God. We end up not really even worshiping God. We end up not having faith in God, at least not the true God, not the true God as he's revealed himself to be. Instead, we're honestly coming to and worshiping and having faith in a God of our own creation, 
one that we have made up, an idol. And thus the danger is that you and I can be identifying with Ephraim here a lot more than we would definitely want to or intend to. A greater danger is you and I finding ourselves in taking God's grace for granted to be willfully choosing to be in a condition where, where grace can end in a final gift of grace, in a final call to correctly understand and respond to grace. Now, you might question, I thought God's grace was never ending. We sing it, don't we? And it is. Marvelous, infinite, <laughs> matchless grace. It is. So what final call of grace? What final gift of grace? What final opportunity to embrace God's grace as he designed it and as he delivered it? It is never ending. If you're not at your end yet, see? We all have an end. We don't know when that will be. I mention this quote often from this pulpit, but the early church leader Augustine says, God surely promises his grace for our faith, for our confession of sin, and for our repentance. But he does not ever promise a tomorrow for our procrastination. And there's hundreds of thousands more than that, maybe millions, I don't know. But there's a burning hell full of people right now, tonight, as we're here meeting in this church, who will testify to a final offer of grace, a final call that they rejected a final call that they ignored. And so to abuse grace, to take the grace of God for granted, something we don't want to do. If you've turned in faith to Jesus Christ, if you've confessed and repented of sin, if you've been born again, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot. It's, you've been granted eternal life. It was something that God did, and it's just that. It's eternal. But even Christians, you and I, just like God's people, Ephraim here, we can experience the destructive effects of taking God's grace for granted. God's amazing grace is how we came to faith in Christ, and it's how we will continue to grow in Christ if we continue in grace correctly, if we will not fall to Satan's twisting of God's design and grace, if we won't fall to Satan's twisting of what God is doing in grace, his deliverance of us from sin. Will God ever treat those who are his, his people? Will God ever treat those who are saved like he does Ephraim here? If we were to take his grace for granted and, and to join ourselves to idolatry, will he ever let us alone? Will he? Well, no, he's promised in Hebrews 13.5, quoting Deuteronomy 31.6, I will never leave you or forsake you. But if we would join ourselves to idolatry, if confession and repentance would halt in our lives, if we would abuse his grace and take it for granted and see it as a license to continue in sin rather than a liberty or freedom to not live in sin and to turn from sin, well, it's not a question of him leaving us, but of us leaving him. We've got biblical examples of that. In Acts 5, we find Ananias and Sapphira joining themselves to a love of money, joining themselves to dishonesty, defending it through dishonesty, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to the Apostle Peter, even when given a final call of grace. And it was a final one for them. They had a final opportunity to repent. 
You can ask the believers in Corinthians where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that some of them who were brazenly continuing in sin and abusing God's grace, he says, some of you are sick for this reason and some of you sleep. There's a final call. (laughs) There's a final opportunity to turn and repent. So yes, even in this sad, scary pronouncement here in Hosea 4.17 to Ephraim, we find a final call to come back to where God has been waiting since we left him. A final offer, even in verse 17. If it seems harsh, it's, it's one final extension of grace that God is giving to Ephraim and giving to you and I and anyone listening tonight. One final opportunity to correctly and rightly understand and respond to grace. He did that just a couple of weeks ago as we studied in Mark. And he told those disciples, he says, when you go into a village and they reject the gospel message, what are you to do? You shake off the sandals, shake off the dust, the sand between your sandals. As a final testimony to them, one last offering of grace that they're rejecting. So how do we fight this incorrect understanding that can come to us of God's amazing grace? How do we remain in a true biblical understanding of God's amazing grace? God's design in it, what his purpose is in it, that we would turn from sin. How do we prevent ever taking God's grace for granted? And God gives us five remedies that we need to realize, remedies that will prevent us from ever doing that and properly respond to his grace. I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 81, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Psalm 81, 11 and 12. Here's the first remedy, and we need to realize that the worst judgment possible that we could experience is to be left alone, just as it said there in Hosea 4.17. Now, hopefully, from this long introduction, (laughs) We've, all that we've considered, we're either here or we're very near to this realization that to be left alone is the closest thing that we could experience to a hell on earth. Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, it says, But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Will you hear And heed the warning that's given in this psalm. What worse judgment could the unbeliever face eternally and even the Christian face this side of heaven than to lose the presence of God in their lives? For God just to let you go on in the direction you headed when you left him. I can't think of a worse judgment. In Romans 1, um, 21 to 24, I'll read that. You don't have to turn there. But in Romans 1, 21 to 24, it talks about that very thing. It's referring to unbelievers. There's no doubt about it, but I think there's application to you and I as well. It says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, they're clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In verse 21, because that when they knew God, they had experienced God's grace. They glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They joined themselves to idolatry. And what happened? Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up. So you want to head out? There's a final call, a final offering of grace there. A dreadful description here in Romans of a man apart from Christ, but how much more for a believer 
who has already received God's grace to us in Jesus. And so may a righteous and healthy fear of a final call, may even the potential that we would be left alone to continue walking away from God, may it help us to never mistreat his grace or abuse his grace. May we pray, God, never leave me to my own heart. No, stay on me. Stay hounding me. Stay convicting me. I ask you to go to Matthew 27. Here's the second remedy. We need to realize that God is as just as he is gracious. Matthew 27, 46. We've referenced this truth already, but we worship and we trust in and we serve a God who has revealed himself to be as he wants to be known. It's an act of worship to have favorite aspects of God's character and conduct. It's not bad to do that. It'll probably change over time in your life depending on your context and what you're going through. Some aspect of who God is or what he's doing will be specially precious to you. But it's an act of an idolatry to not recognize who he is in his totality and to praise him for that and to live by all that he's revealed himself to be. We could spend years considering verses in God's word that reference God's holiness and his justice 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, it quotes Leviticus 19, 2. And God says, I am holy, so be ye holy, followers of me. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 5 reminds us that he's holy and he's just. He's a judge. And there will be a day when all will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But if you want to see God's grace and his holiness in one place. If you want to see the totality of God and what looks like, what seems like sometimes to be two diametrically opposed things, that we have a gracious God, but we have a very holy God. If you want to see them in one place, Psalm 85, 10 also does it. It says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Prophetically talking about Jesus Christ. But now we go to Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say in Aramaic, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So right here, Christian, right here is God's grace hung on the cross, isn't it? But also right here is God's holiness and justice, a holiness and justice that was due you and I, but was poured out on the suffering and innocent Savior. This is some pretty amazing grace right here, isn't it? We've got God forsaking God. We've got God leaving God alone, like we saw in Hosea 4.17. It's incredible. So that you and I should never have to experience that. Never have to be let alone if we receive his grace properly, if we respond to his grace properly. When you look at the cross, when you look at grace, it's no excusal for holiness there. It's evidence of God's holiness. It's evidence of his demand for it in the lives of those he's redeemed. A couple chapters back, will you turn with me to Matthew 11? Matthew 11, we'll look at verses 20 to 24. Here's the third remedy, the thing that we need to realize. We must realize that sins against grace bring the worst judgments to us. We already talk about, talked about one of the worst possible judgments is just to be left to keep on going away. And 
we've got to understand, again, I don't want to emphasize just the holiness of God tonight. This comes on the heels of looking at Psalm 51 and God's amazing grace there. Thomas Brooks stated it this way, mercy or grace, it's alpha. It's our first interaction with God. And justice or holiness, well, that's omega, where we will end up if we deny what he's offered us since the beginning. God wanted um, to reveal himself to Moses, and Moses wanted to know God. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Moses is like, God, if you are going to ask me to lead these people, I need to know who you are. And he said, Moses, I'll reveal myself to you. He passed by Moses, and he spoke to him. And listen to what he says. Notice what comes first. I am merciful. I'm gracious, and I'm long-suffering, and I'm abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, and I will by no means clear the guilty. Yes, praise the Lord. This is what we have to understand about God. Pardon always comes first. That's alpha. Punishment comes when we reject alpha, when we reject pardon, when we abuse his grace. And David in Psalm 101.1 praises God as such. He says, I will sing of your mercy and judgment. <laughs> Both. This is a totality of who God has revealed himself to be. We can have a Jesus who bore our punishment, or we can reject grace and experience that punishment. And a judgment against grace is the worst possible judgment. A judgment or a sin against grace finds the worst possible judgment. So let's read this. Should we doubt the words of our Savior? Matthew uh, chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to upbraid or rebuke the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. Why? Because they repented not. He said, woe or cursed. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. And woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth. And ashes. If they, if this godless area of the world, Phoenicia, above Israel, not God's people, if they would have experienced the mighty works, if they had God's grace given to them like I've given it to you, what would have they have done? Repented, rightly responded to grace. And he says in verse 22, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven. We've been studying the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and how many events and miracles and messages went out to Capernaum. He says, well, you'll be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Until this day. You've experienced God's grace, Capernaum. And you rejected it. You turned. You didn't rightly respond to it. But if, if it was given to Sodom, they would have repented. And I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for thee. So yes, we've got to realize that sins against grace bring the worst possible judgments imaginable. God, help us to realize the horrendous promised end of taking your grace for granted. And then 2 Chronicles 7.14, if you'll turn there with me, you probably know this by heart. Boy, we've referenced this verse in the last year. 2 Chronicles 7.14, we have to realize this is an important remedy against misunderstanding grace or falling to Satan's twisting and manipulation of it. We have to realize that not all grace is unconditional. Saving grace, how you and I came to Christ, 
totally unconditional, all of God. Our gift of eternal life, completely unconditional on our part, requiring nothing but a faith and a faith that he's he's given. But sustaining grace, how you and I continue in the Christian life, it's still grace, still unmerited favor, still something that we don't deserve, but it's definitely conditional. And God's word speaks for itself. In Psalm 32, 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Psalm 33, 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on everyone. No, is on those that fear him, on them that hope in his mercy. Psalm 103, 17, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, and it's on those that fear him. So a fear of the Lord, a faith lived out, a right understanding of God's grace to us and the deliverance from sin it intends, that will help us to continue to walk in his sustaining graces that are very much conditional. <laughs> They're conditioned on our fear and our, our faith and our obedience and our joy and our love. And you know this verse well. I'm going to emphasize some words and throw a few in there that are they're in there. If my people my people, not everybody. If my people, which are called by my name, if they shall humble themselves, and if they shall pray, and if they shall seek my face, and if they turn from their wicked ways, what's the next word? Then. Does that sound like a condition? Yeah. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will hear their land. This is grace described and defined and lived out. We don't deserve this, but it's definitely conditional. There's no doubt about it. Could it be any clearer to us than this? In Jesus' letter to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, the first three chapters, five of them were called to repent, but all of them he promised, if you will overcome, then this. If you will do this, then you will receive this. One last scripture passage, Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Here's the final remedy, the fifth one, to help us not fall to Satan's twisting of grace. What God gives us, and and Paul, as he faced it in the church of Rome and Ephesus and Colossae and and 1st, 2nd Thessalonians talks about it. Uh, John had to fight it in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We've got to realize that God's grace is not an excuse to sin, but it's the most powerful argument that God gives us not to sin. Here's the attitude toward God's amazing grace that should fix itself in our minds and in our hearts and should be fulfilled in our lives. We're to look on God's amazing grace as the most incredible and effectual and powerful reason to resist temptation and say no to sin. Never, never as an encouragement, enablement, or license to sin. And this was a view of grace held by Joseph, Genesis 39, 9, when he was presented with a temptation for adultery. Joseph says, how could I then do this great wickedness and sin against God? He had his eyes rightly fixed on grace. And when that happens, you cannot yield to temptation. It was a correct view of God's grace held by David in Psalm 26, 3 through 5. David says, I have set your loving kindness before my eyes. Your 
Chesed, your mercy, your grace, I've put it before my eyes. And as a result, I have walked in your truth, positive. And as a result, I, I have not sat with vain persons and I will not go in with dissemblers and I've hated the congregation of evildoers and I won't sit with the wicked, all negative type of things. Why? Because he kept God's amazing grace before his eyes. And finally, it's the view of the Apostle Paul here in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, and he invites us to consider it. He even puts it out as like a, an argument because he knows this is coming. Well, if God's gracious, shouldn't we just continue to sin so that he's even more gracious and we magnify his grace more? And what does Paul say? What does God's amazing grace shout triumphantly against this lie, this twisting of God's grace from the devil? What does he say? God forbid. <laughs> he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you look at verse 6, he says, Our old man's been crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and from here on out we shouldn't serve sin. And verse 7, you, you've been dead. You've been crucified with Christ, so you're free from sin. And verse 11, so consider yourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. One last one, verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, because you're not under the law anymore. What are you under? Grace. <laughs> Amazing grace. And that's such a little word, like a little preposition that we just reach over. But under grace. And this is God's whole design and everything we looked at tonight. You are under grace. When he gives it to you, when he invites you, when he calls you, we're to place ourselves under that grace and go, no, there's no way I'm doing that, Satan. It's not license to sin. It's not liberty to continue in sin and just ask forgiveness later. No, it's a powerful evidence and argument and reason not to continue in sin. That's what God's amazing grace is. There's nothing that renders a man more unlike a saint and more like Satan than to argue that God's amazing grace offers license to sin rather than the liberty and the power to say no, to say no to sin. I want to close here just by explaining where we are in Romans. In verse chapters 1 through 11, Paul spends 11 chapters talking about God's grace. Chapters 1 through 11 are about salvation, how we're saved by his grace through faith. 11 chapter long, detailed description of God's grace, that we're not only justified by God's grace through faith, Saved from the penalty of sin, going to heaven, having a home forever there, eternal life. But we're also sanctified, set apart by that same grace. So we're not just saved from sin's penalty, but also its power. And this happens by grace. So what's the whole point of 11 chapters? I talk about that. Well, it's in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I know you know these by heart as well. In those very next two verses, after he spent 11 chapters talking about God's grace, he says... I beseech, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, Christians, I plead with you by the mercies of God or on account of grace, on account of 11 chapters of what I've been talking about, on account of what we've described here tonight, that you do what? That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is not taking grace for granted. Presenting our bodies, grace received and, and grace responded to rightly. Our bodies, our tongues, our mind, our everything. We present it to him as a living sacrifice every day doing this. It's holy. It's acceptable to him. 
That's a reasonable service. That's a reasonable response to God's amazing grace. This is God's amazing grace. You know, back in Hosea 4.17, where it said, Ephraim's joined himself to idolatry. Let him alone. It wasn't long before Assyria came in and killed many of them, took captive the rest of them, because they left that final call. And God left them alone. Judgment came. But do you want to see God's amazing grace? The very first area of Israel that was invaded by Assyria, it was the very first area that Jesus Christ ministered in centuries later, right around the Sea of Galilee. It's where they first came in. It's where Jesus Christ first went, proclaiming the gospel of grace. That's God's amazing, amazing grace. I can't help but think of Ephesus, that first church that Jesus sends a letter to in Revelation. And uh, they're doing pretty good. Doctrinally sound church, serving the Lord, busy, out there fulfilling the Great Commission. But what did he have against them? Just one thing. They had left their first love. Left their first love. Compared to some of the other churches, like Pergamos, the compromising church, sin was in the pews and nobody was doing anything about it. The church of Thyatira was worse yet. What about Laodicea at the end? Lukewarm. God wants to throw them up. Ephesus doesn't seem so bad. But yet God said to them at the end of his letter, Remember where you came from and repent. He told them to repent. He gave them a final call of grace. Amazing church. Paul helped plan it. Priscilla and Aquila were leaders there. Onesiphorus, the apostle John, was their pastor for a while. I wonder, did they repent? I'm going to Tommy to throw a slide up now. I don't know if you can see that. You know where that is? That's Ephesus today. It's no city. It's no church. <laughs> There's no church. They got a final call to repent. Final call, final offer of God's grace. God, help us to rightly respond to your grace. I asked Tommy to come up. We're going to sing a song that will allow us to do that. We'll sing it in praise and worship to him. But as you pay attention to the words, I think it's a somewhat new one for you. It's not a new one. It's really old. All right. But um, powerful words. Um, invitation him called God's final call. I just want you to do business with God. Ask him, please, God, never let me take your grace for granted. I pray that I would lead by example in my family and in my church. Use this song to respond to his grace properly tonight and use it to set you that way tomorrow in a life that's properly responding to his grace.